Hello and welcome to our joint Center for Economic Policy Research and Peterson Institute for International Economics webinar on containing the economic nationalist virus through global coordination. My name is Tim Phillips and I'll be moderating for the next hour. Now, one of our panelists today, you'll find out who that is in a minute, recently called economic nationalism an opportunistic infection. And in economies weakened by the spread of COVID-19 and the policies put in place in response to it, of course, um, will we see that infection take hold and what will happen if it does? So our panel today consists of three people who are very qualified to talk about this infection. Um, Monica Dubolik, first of all, is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute. She's former director for Latin American Studies um, at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Hello, Monica. Hello, happy to be here and part of this great panel. Thank you. Now, you've been researching and writing about this for the past couple of years. This isn't something that you've just thought of in the last couple of months, is it? Why have you been investigating this? So this started back in 2017, um, right after we saw the election of Trump here in the US and after we'd seen Brexit, we, um, when I say we, it's me and my co-authors, we sort of got together and started thinking through, you know, what the implications might be, were these one-offs, were these things that would potentially spark a bigger sort of global movement. And of course, you know, Adam, who's also here, was deeply involved in those discussions. And then it just made sense, you know, to turn this into a research agenda at that point. And from then on, what we saw is that, you know, unlike the initial thinking that it was basically contained to Trump and Brexit, what we saw was just this, this resurgence in economic nationalism that spread everywhere throughout the world. Um, and so we started writing a book about it and we're finishing it. The, the first draft of the, of the manuscript as we speak. Okay, now uh, also, as you mentioned, um, Adam is the uh, president of the Peterson Institute and a specialist in the economic impact of international relations. So welcome, Adam, as well. Thank you for having me. Great to have CPR and PIE collaborating like this. Well, it, it's great to have you here. And it was your quote that uh, we gave in the beginning for um, uh, an article that you wrote for the CEPR, and I'd like to quote something else from that article here. You wrote that economic nationalists see their moment in the current crisis much like their nationalist forebears tried to seize the moment in the depression and disorder of the 1920s and the 1930s. Now that's quite strong stuff. Um, is it, is, are the stakes really that high? I fear they are, Tim. Um, as Monica said, she and some of our colleagues at Peterson We've been doing research on this and we consciously chose the term economic nationalism to distinguish it from just populist pandering or just nationalism that, that is just nativism. This is a program that we've seen repeatedly and it, it has values that are those of the 1920s and 30s fascists to some degree. And I caused a bit of a stir lecturing at LSE uh, shortly after the Brexit vote and saying this is the same as Trump, this is where this is going. And they, and I know Sergey and his co-authors have, have documented how there are these common themes of closing off from the world, of scapegoating others, of preventing migration, of defining citizenship in blood terms and land terms, which then affects business opportunities and labor opportunities for everyone in the society. It diminishes competition, it tends to pull together a lot of arbitrary power, think of Bolsonaro, think of Orban in Europe, very 
tellingly, think of Duarte in the Philippines, think of the success of regimes in Venezuela, as well as, of course, Trump and Modi. I mean, as Monica said, this is globally spreading. And even though we're economists, I at least feel willing to go out on the limb and say that this is about opportunistic and frankly evil politicians who may or may not believe what they're doing. I mean, that's the question always about Hitler in the 30s of Mussolini. Was it just he wanted to get ahead? Did he believe it? What he was saying was probably both. It was he believed it and he used it to get power. And you see some of the same echoing phenomena. People like Adam Tooze and Barry Eichengreen have also written about this, where you have businesses and people who don't want to rock the status quo saying, well, we can control them. Well, they'll be reasonable. Well, so far, they've been reasonable compared to the 30s, but not reasonable compared to the entire post-war era of prosperity and peace we've had. A final point, if I may, there are a lot of people, thoughtful people like Danny Roderick and others, who had been arguing the last few years that globalization had gone too far, that it was sort of inherent that we have localism and people demanding greater sovereignty, greater government control, national spirit. I don't think that's inherent at all. I think that is an opportunistic infection. I think that is something that comes up when people are dissatisfied. It comes up particularly when white males in the U.S. or their equivalent around the world feel threatened that they're no longer going to be in the majority. They are going to be subject to competition. And we should push back on it just because people say this and push back on globalization and liberalism doesn't mean they're right. doesn't mean we have to cave in. Now, our third panelist today is Sergei Guriev. He's a CEPR fellow. He's also a professor of economics at Sciences Po in Paris. And since last year, he's also been the director of the CEPR's research network on populism. Uh, Sergei, uh, welcome to you. This topic must also have been something quite apart from your work on populism you came up against when you were chief economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development as well. Thank you very much, Tim. Indeed, it is a very important topic. Uh, I agree that economic nationalism and populism are different things, and some populists are not economic nationalists. Uh, economic nationalism usually is about uh, protectionism, at the same time supporting domestic uh, market uh, policies. And in that sense, what is striking is how you have right-wing parties that uh, seem to be in favor of pro-market policies domestically, standing up against globalization and uh, following the policies that uh, both uh, Monica and Adam have mentioned. Uh, but yes, in the recent years, we've seen the rise of economic nationalists. If you actually look at what is the recent rise of populism was, we saw much more in terms of rise of right-wing populism, in, in terms of uh, populists who want to pursue economic nationalist policies. Now, the interesting part is that since those people have been in power for a while now, we <clears throat> already can measure their performance, their economic performance. And the, even before this epidemic, even before some of them failed badly during the epidemic, even before that, uh, there, are, there are a number of papers which show that they actually underperformed uh, the counterfactual. They did not deliver on their promises. And furthermore, they also uh, hurt the very same people that they promised to protect. Their papers, including papers uh, by Adams and Monica's uh, uh, colleagues at Peterson Institute, showing that the trade war US President Trump started against China actually hurt people um, that eventually voted against him in 2018 in the midterm elections. And um, 
uh, in that sense, we see that this is indeed a very opportunistic uh, policy framework in which uh, you have, uh, you have, I would call them populists by now, economic nationalist populists, who do not deliver on their promises, which is quite scary because we know from history when populists do not deliver on their promises, they try to shut down political competition, undermine political checks and balances, and undermine democracy to stay in power. Yeah, this really is not a time not to be delivering on your promises, is it? Now, before we uh, get further into the details of this, then uh, I must remind you as our audience that um, this is better if you ask questions. And how do you ask questions? Well, if you go down to the bottom there, there's the Q&A tab. You can ask questions. If you go to it and you find that the question you wanted to be asked has been asked already, you can upvote that question. And so it comes to the top and we'll get through as many of the questions as we can. Will we not panel? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I, it's a, a, a commitment to answering questions. We've got one in already. I'll, I'll, I'll be having a look at that. Um, can I ask you a, a question, Monica, to you? This is not, economic nationalism is something that isn't a, a new discipline to think about, is it? There has been a lot of research on this. Yeah, there has. Um, and in fact, it's a, it's a term, you know, economic nationalism is a term with a very long history. Um, it goes all the way back to the 19th century and it goes all the way back to actually the late 18th century and the 19th century, because it goes back to the writings of Alexander Hamilton on the one hand, Friedrich List on the other. Um, and at that point, you know, the, the conversation or the, 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 um, the, the, the writings on economic nationalism were basically picking up, you know, the need for industrialization. How do you industrialize infant industry arguments? You know, it, it was sort of a developmental type of economic nationalism, which was touching on all the then 19th century um, late industrializers, so to speak. So everybody who industrialized after Great Britain. And then, you know, that whole um, literature evolved in the, in the interwar period to this darker side of economic nationalism that Adam was referring to. And then, you know, it, it, we just kept on having these cycles of economic nationalism throughout history. And these cycles are all reflected in the writings that have been ongoing since, as I said, you know, the late 18th and the 19th century, sometimes echoing more the darker side of economic nationalism of the 30s, sometimes echoing more the sort of de developmental aspects of economic nationalist policies, which I'm sure we'll dive into and we'll define at greater length. But it's a it's a it's a long it's it, there's a there's a long sort of intellectual um, history behind this term that deserves notice because it's not just something that you know we've thought up out of the blue and are talking about now it it's it it has come before and it has come in these in these waves. Yeah, and, and just two two quick hints. I mean, so there was a very classic work by Sebastian Edwards and some co-authors about the populist wave of economic nationalists in Latin America. And that's what, about 25, 30 years old now or more. Yeah, and 1990. Where Monica, where Monica and her co-authors are picking up is there had been essentially as part of the end of history idea that we were all converging on one model. Nobody's really looked at it since then in an empirical way. Another reference um, worth, worth thinking about Sorry, I just my brain just glitched. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is, is there? There are, of course, 
a, a, a recent academic work, and Sergey's part of this this network. Stephanie Tantareva, I think, at Harvard, and has work on weird perceptions different groups have, and obviously that's a general political issue, but I think it influences this. Yes, absolutely. We had a we did a podcast with Stephanie only a few weeks right. ago on that about how people are, are yes, you know how their beliefs tend to polarize according to their pre-existing uh, values, yes. Uh, Sergey, there is a question, I'll put this in now actually, it's because it's from Beata, your successor at the EVRDC, uh, that we do have to cover off. Why, if economic nationalism is so bad as, a, as an economic policy, do, as do populists, and populists do not deliver, why do they remain popular? Why are they populists? Uh, this is uh, this is a great question. Well, the populists are not called populists because they're popular, because they preserve popularity, because they pretend to protect the people against the elites, right? Uh, so we should uh, get the terms straight. But uh, one of the big questions in this literature, indeed, how they stay in power if they underperform. Now, Biata, my successor at the BRD is Polish and Polish government is actually one of the exceptions where a populist government has done reasonably well. But it is really one uh, of very few exceptions, it's not, if not the only exception, where populists outperform the counterfactual. However, uh, there is a recent uh, uh, line of research and you mentioned uh, Stephanie Stancheva's work on polarization of beliefs. We just saw a recent paper by Alcott Gensko uh, Taylor and Young, uh, which looked, for example, at polarization of attitudes to social distancing, where they show that in democratic counties, you're more likely to observe social distancing, while in Republican, you don't, which kind of means it's not just a political issue, it's also how you perceive facts. And basically, uh, when people ask what else to read, I, I would also mention our survey with Elias Papayano of the whole literature on populism, which just came out of the CPR discussion paper a couple of months ago, so in this survey, we also show the recent theoretical work, which uh, explains how people try to uh, change their views and how their new social identity that they choose uh, leads them to think differently, use different mental models, and believe populists more. And in that sense, you see this shift from left-right political cleavage to open versus closed, or from cultural liberal to cultural conservative uh, cleavage. And this new divide in the society also pushes us in the direction of what we just mentioned, polarization of beliefs about the outside world. And so you come to these people and you say, this president is not fighting the epidemic well. And they would say, I don't believe you. I believe in my own preferred version of reality. And this is a big challenge. And now the final thing I would like to mention, and we did uh, a podcast with Tim about this is, uh, my own uh, paper with uh, Nikita Melnikov and Ekaterina Zhuravska, where we show that social media's expansion, the last decade of great expansion of mobile internet, actually fueled the growth of populism. Populists are doing better in using, in using online media. And we still need to understand why and how and why other politicians, mainstream politicians, cannot do as well in social media in on on online uh, news uh, um, uh, channels but this is also a factor that has probably contributed to the rise of populists who uh, as i mentioned are very often economic nationalists and uh, this is how the populists 
get away with not delivering on their promises. And finally, something that I mentioned, if you shut down um, free media, if you introduce online censorship, if you make sure that the position has no chance to win the election, you stay in power and you claim to be popular. And this is something that I would like to mention again. We are now talking mostly about democratic politicians, but some of these people are kind of borderline with autocrats. And modern autocrats pretend to be popular. And this is, again, a line of work that I would like to mention is our, our series of papers uh, with Dan Priesman, including informational autocrats in Journal of Economic Perspectives, where we show how modern autocrats convince the otherwise, um, convince the public that they are actually popular, even if they are not, through censorship, propaganda, and adaptation of elites. So there are many factors at play, but these people are very skillful. I'm sorry, I have to, I have to disagree in one very important way, which is despite all the good work you've mentioned, I think our economics profession and the people you've mentioned are still missing the point, because that's still phrased in terms of various kinds of cleavages that are generic. And this is actually a lot about privileged racial and gender groups wanting to maintain their relative status. And it's very specific, and it is, like I said, the equivalent of the white, less educated male in the U.S., the people, the, the middle, lower middle class Hindus in, in, in India, the petty bourgeoisie in Nazi Germany, it's, it's the same groups. And I caused a bit of a stir a few years ago when I was forecasting the effect of the Trump election in September 2016, and I pointed out that it was, this is where the cleavage is going to be, it's about race. And again, there are plenty of people in the U.S. saying that, but not in the economics discussion. And I said it again in January 2019 at AEA, and I said, you know, don't 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 think about the anti-globalization as as you put it, culturally open, culturally closed, conservative. No, it's about white males in the U.S. or or you know their equivalent in Britain who say I feel more privileged in this environment and therefore I want to conserve this environment. And I think it is a little bloodless and misleading for us not to call that what it is. I, I agree. And I think this is what I wanted to mention when I said uh, cultural liberal, cultural conservative. This divide is very correlated with the fear of losing status, which you mentioned. I fully agree. Thank you. Monica, I'd like to bring you in and then we, then we need to move on to COVID-19 because that's why we're here. Okay. Yeah. So just to back up um, everything that Adam was saying with the, with the work that we've been doing at the Institute, so Jeremy Zettelmeyer and I um, have a paper that we published last year that looks at you know, it, the, the political party platforms of different political parties across the G20. And we actually developed a methodology by which to measure um, the content of the economic nationalism content, so to speak. We, we devise several policy dimensions, their economic policy dimensions, such as trade policy, industrial policy, competition policy, and so on. And then what we did was look at the party platforms and grade them according to this methodology to identify exactly where you know, we were seeing um, economic nationalism popping up. And it turns out you know, that where we actually see it popping up across the G20, as I said, matches directly what Adam was saying, because you can see from the political parties and their platforms, the ones which score the highest, who are the groups that were actually voting for those parties, and thus you can establish this mapping. So we have the data to actually support, you know, the, 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 this, this idea that, you know, it is 
it is these groups. And yes, we do have to call them out because they are directly identifiable. Now, the crisis that we're in at the moment, how does economic nationalism manifest itself as a, a response to this crisis? And how damaging is that? Who would like to take that one first? I could take that one. Monica, you go first and then we'll go to Adam. Yeah. So in the policy dimensions that I was talking about, one of the policy dimensions that we look at is the rejection of multilateral institutions. Um, And we had already been seeing a lot of rejection of multilateral institutions. But in the current crisis, we just saw a very clear case of a rejection of a multilateral institutions in President Trump saying that he was not going to fund the, the World Health Organization. So mm-hmm. there you go. You know, there's the there is an there is right there an example and an expression of economic nationalism in the works as the epidemic develops. Um, apart from that, we have seen you know economic nationalism manifest itself, and our colleagues at the Peterson Institute have written extensively about this trade on medical equipment. You know, the sort of protectionism and and, and other policies that are being put in place to stem trade of medical equipment in the world um, and the kind of fallout that that's going to have for everybody because it's going to affect every country. So these sorts of things we're seeing more and more of and not to speak of Orban and what he's done in Hungary in terms of grabbing power, you know, establishing sort of an autocratic system. So we have a whole range of actions here that we've seen across the world, which tell us this very clear story that, you know, the current wave of nationalism is highly opportunistic and is using the epidemic as a platform. Mm -hmm. Adam. Yeah, uh, just to build on that, and I'm sure Sergei will build further. I mean, right now the G20 is meeting or getting ready to meet. We've just published, Maury Opsal and I edited a collection of works from our colleagues and what you kindly referred to before, Tim, was my contribution to CPR volume over Sunday and COVID. And what's clear is these are instances, the global pandemic is a case where international collaboration has direct benefits because everybody's pushing in the same direction. You want everybody doing the same investments in healthcare. You want everybody sharing the same information. You want everybody fighting against shortages of medical equipment or malnutrition because those spread the virus you, and so on and so on and so on. This is a time when it's not woolly-headed cosmopolitans thinking, oh my God, we should sing Kumbaya. This is a time when there are clear deliverables that you get from collective action. As Maureen and I put it, you know, sometimes economic policy isn't about trade-offs. Sometimes, particularly in the international sphere, it's about you can only get to certain fruit if you work together to get up the tree. I mean, this is, this is what we're talking about. And what, as Monica said, and it's horrifying, Trump pulling funding from the WHO. What you're seeing is blame shifting. There's much more formal ways of talking about this. Of course, it's the rough instinct, the reflex of every country, be it European, American, Asian, to say, oh, I got to make sure it's enough for my country. I got to make sure it's enough for my citizens. But we also know that that kind of hoarding and behavior in a crowded theater, in a crisis, in a boat, is going to sink the boat. Failure to have international cooperation will lead to more death. But Adam, is there an instance where you could where you could define economic, well, nationalism, national self-interest yeah. as it's normally practiced, shall we say, as a positive in this, uh, you know, as something that's understandable and positive? Or are you just saying that all national self-interest at the moment is bad? 
Well, I mean, you can get Clinton-esque and say, well, how do you define national self-interest, right? So if your goal is, as an economist speaks, to maximize the health and well-being of your citizens, as we've all mentioned, there's a lot of work out there, notably by my colleague Chad Baum and many others, mm-hmm. that these, these directly nationalist policies actually backfire, not just on the rest of the world, but on your own people, because nobody is an island either in terms of being able to isolate from the disease or in terms of being able to fully supply themselves with the things they need. So there are national self-interest if you can get, this goes back to the definition of nationalism versus populism versus economic nationalism. A robust nationalism that rallies people around together, like we're seeing in a lot of countries, about lockdown and supporting the medical providers and supporting the frontline workers. Nationalism that is in the developmental spirit of Monica, that you're investing in a better future for your people, that you're all pitching in like we did during the wars. These are things that you can talk about as good nationalism, but this is a problem where the economic solutions are going to be undermined if you try to cut yourself off from other countries, and even worse, if you try to beggar other countries. So, Gay, where do you see this manifesting in the crisis? Well, there are several things here. One is, as I mentioned, many economic nationalists are populists, and the quintessential feature of modern populism is the fight against the elites, which includes distrust in expertise, uh, rejection of experts' opinion. And this is the crisis where, of course, people understand how important it is uh, to rely on science, rely on scientists and cooperate, and also cooperate globally to create a vaccine, for example, or create a testing kits or testing for antibodies. All these issues are, of course, uh, about creation of global public goods, and that's exactly about saving lives. Now, I should say that when we talk about national versus multinational institutions, this is the time where you need a lot of resources. And this is the time where, by definition, nation states have more money to spend than supranational institutions. The whole budget of European Commission is 1% of European GDP. Countries now are putting together fiscal packages of 10% of GDP, 15% of GDP, 20% of GDP. And so by definition, there is a uh, concentration of resources within the realm of the nation state. But of course, as Adam correctly said, there are also global challenges which need to be fought together. One of them is related to the situation in developing countries, in poor countries. And this is exactly what's going to be discussed this week in the annual meetings of IMF and the World Bank. What do IMF and the World Bank are going to, to, to do, as well as G20 countries, to help countries who cannot easily put together a 20% of GDP fiscal package because they're in debt, they don't have reserves. So they are facing major humanitarian challenges. And this is where the global institutions can help them. And as a, as a citizen of my nation, I would actually say it is in my national interest to help poorer countries to go through this crisis with uh, uh, as few deaths and uh, in, uh, human losses as possible. There is a question here from um, Hugo Doyle that is related to that. And he's saying, "Are we? Uh, do you expect to see in the future Uh, ex-ante regulation to restrict uh, foreign direct investment or uh, ex-post blocking decisions on investment specifically because that that is seen as let's concentrate our money in helping those nearest to us. Uh, Do do you think that this is going to be a change in policy? I think Hugo's right to raise it. This was actually one of our 
primary focus points prior to us realizing what was happening with the pandemic. Um, over the last couple of years, a lot of resentment, some, ju some justified, some not, has come up in the so-called West against China. A lot of concerns about national technologies flowing to China. Um, and so the U.S. had already put in place a massive expansion, and we would believe an over-expansion with too much arbitrary power. But anyway, a massive expansion of its uh, investment barriers and reviews for particularly Chinese, but potentially anybody's investment. And this was being spilled out through the sanctions regime the U.S. runs to affect all kinds of multinational companies, all kinds of multinational research efforts. Um, but at the same, but I have to stress, this was not just the Trump administration. This was from both parties and both houses of Congress. And something similar was supported in the UK, in Germany, in Australia, even Japan. They're starting to change their rules. And so this was a movement already underway, where this goes from being China-focused, which is bad enough, to being really destructive is when it becomes economic nationalist, every country for themselves, that everything is zero sum. Like the things that CPR has written very well about, about technological exchange in Europe being disrupted by Brexit. Um, this is going to slow productivity growth. It's going to slow innovation. It's going to slow innovation in, in responding to the pandemic. But so I think Hugo is absolutely right. And what remains to be played for is how much this kind of barriers to exchange of technology get deepened as a result of this infection. So Reinhilder points out as well that, um, that while uh, international cooperation is, uh, is a wonderful equilibrium, at the moment there is always the incentive to defect from it. Right. And once one large player defects from it, then everybody else really has to as well. Um, is there anything we can do about this instability at the moment? Monica. It's hard. Um, in the middle of an epidemic, it's very difficult. So I would say that no. I mean, right now, in the, the current moment that we're living through, it is, it is extremely difficult to move certain leaders away from the positions that they're taking. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that, you know, a few months down the road, once we have a little bit more clarity as to how the world, what, what the world is going to look like after this epidemic is over, that you know the the things won't change. So one thing that we're already seeing, and we see it everywhere, is that as a result of the epidemic and the economic fallout and everything else, a lot of leaders, including a lot of these nationalist leaders, while they are having sort of an opportune moment. At the same time, they're facing a lot of challenges going forward because obviously, you know, the death toll, the numbers of the epidemic, the economic fallout, all of that ultimately is in the hands of the incumbents, so to speak, whether they be nationalists or non-nationalists. And so I think one thing that will be very interesting to see is moving forward as countries have elections, what are we going to see? Are voters going to you know, put the blame where blame should be put in places where we haven't seen the right response, um, both on the economic front as well as on the health front? And if that happens, will we see a, a change in this, in this economic nationalist way? So I'd say that in the short term, we don't, we don't have a lot of room um, to you know, move the situation, but as time goes by, that will happen in the in the in the course of, of elections um, naturally. I think, 
I, I think in addition, just in very short term pre-election, there is room for other countries, notably the European Union, Japan, Canada, Australia, basically the democratic members of the G20 to whack the US upside the head. And sometimes as we saw in the NAFTA negotiations and other instances, Trump, like most bullies, um, when he gets whacked upside the head, caves. And, and so I think Ryan Hilda raises an important point in game theoretic terms, but it may not be as bleak as she points it out to be. And secondly, since the alternative is mutually beneficial actions, not forced trading, zero sums, Trump portrays it, in this particular situation, not always, but in this particular situation, it also may be easier to get out. So it's daunting, but I don't want to suggest that we're sort of consigned to the prisoner's dilemma or to a collective action problem inherent. While you're on, Adam, there is a question from Emily Blanchard that goes back to your um, uh, your uh, your argument that identity, where the identity lines are drawn, and uh, she's saying that while there is uh, a fear of status loss among race, gender, religious, and other lines like that, as you were as you were arguing, is this not triggered by more generic cleavages, which are for example, uh, wealth differences between those groups. And at the moment, the fear of uh, the vulnerability that different groups suffer in the crisis, uh, and therefore in that crisis, that can trigger, because they're having different responses because they feel the crisis differently. So this is a really important point Emily's raising, and there's been a lot of social science literature on this, and again, certainly Monica will have references and concepts, but just to vastly but not unfairly oversimplify. When we've tried, when social scientists have tried looking at the basic inequality or chance of unemployment measure at the as a predictor of how nationalist you get or how populist you get, compared to whether you're white, male, low-educated, ideologically disposed to the death penalty, whatever proxy, church going, whatever proxy you want to use, those latter set of proxies does much better and drives down massively the explanatory power of the basic inequality. And, and, and so this, this became a topic in public debate a couple of years ago. Uh, it was called the economic anxiety argument in the US. Uh, the Brexit data, you know, you look at Wales, I mean, it, and versus London, it's, it's not there. Now, it's an interesting question why it's not there, um, but just, it's not. <laughs> it, it being the idea that it's generic inequality or generic fear leads to this. It's, it's conditional on who you are. And the other point I would make to Emily, again, this is a really rich topic and I'm not doing it justice. The, the other point I would make to Emily is that the, um, sorry, brain glitched again. I'm getting old. The, 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 um, the conditionality of how much the political system is moved by these hatreds is big on the economic disruption or on the perception of bad performance or the perception of confidence. That's where the where I talk about it being an opportunistic bias. So if we hadn't had the 2008-2009 crisis, I doubt that the racist nationalists would have had as much electoral success as they did. Uh, Monica, how about you? And then I'll come to you, Sergey, as well. Yeah, so um so same. I mean the the what we get out of the out of the the, the different lines of research that we're pursuing sustains exactly what Adam is saying. So 
there's a, there's a very interesting dichotomy here in what's happening. I mean, Adam referred earlier to the famous Dornbush Edwards book, The Macroeconomics of Populism in Latin America. And there, in those instances, even though it was called macroeconomic populism, there were a lot of um, nationalist elements in what a lot of those countries were doing. And then what you saw was, you know, the, the discourse on inequality, distribution, and all of that was very present in, in, the, in, the, in the way that, you know, these leaders expressed their, their views. And of course, they had, had a lot of support precisely because of that. The de they delivered policies that went completely the other way, and they increased inequality, and it created a lot of problems for these countries. But back then, you know, and we're talking here about the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, which is the period covered by the book, um, the element, the inequality aspect was very present. What we see now when we look at the, at the data from across the world and where the votes are coming from and what are the groups that support, you know, different views, they have very little, well, they have something to do, obviously, with inequality and, and you know, social mobility and these kinds of issues. But it is very concentrated in the type of, in the groups of people and in the, the, the cultural whatever norms or whatever you want to define them um, that are associated with these political parties and with these leaders that ultimately manage to, to have more political space and even to be elected. So it's interesting how that has shifted because in the past it used to be, it used to be completely different. And when we started the project, the book that's going to become, you know, the name of the book at the moment is the title is Economic Nationalism. We had started looking at this issue from the inequality angle. And we realized once we started looking at these party platforms and the voters behind them and so on, we realized that we couldn't go down that road, that we had to shift, you know, and we had to shift the focus precisely because the data was no longer supporting what we had seen in the past. So, okay, you, you wanted to speak on this as well. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I would like to say that both economic and political uh, and cultural factors are at play. And uh, we have the CPR populism debate page, which I highly recommend to go to. And that mm. uh, yes. page has a number of contributions, including the contributions on the relative weight of economic and cultural factors and the interaction of, of the two. And indeed, there is a very important conjecture that maybe indeed we are talking about cultural factors, as Adam said, may be triggered by economic shock, where you have people who would otherwise be fine with the status quo and with the elites. But economic anxiety raised the uh, cultural divides, uh, brought, it, uh, brought it to the front. And in that sense, in that sense you, can, you can see that um, we need to understand not just the relative weight of economic anxiety, for example, due to automation or China import shock or crisis of 2008-2009 and or aesthetic after the crisis and the cultural divides Monica and Adam were talking about but also the interaction of cultural and economic factors and I think this is an exciting agenda for this future. I, I have another question here and it's a Europe question it's about the response we're still on the the, the immediate response to COVID-19 at the moment Mark Cliff is asking uh, what's the risk that the arguments over fiscal solidarity that we're seeing uh, between Southern and Northern Europe are going to fuel economic nationalism? They do play into that narrative, don't they? Uh, Adam, do you want to take that? 
I, I'd be very interested in what Sergey has to say. I think, I, no, seriously, um, I, I think, yeah, the answer is yes, because the more solidarity you get, the more the Dutch and the Germans, at least some Germans and, and Finns and Swedes say, hey, they're freeloading off us, what the hell are they doing? The less solidarity you get, the more the Italians and others say, why the hell are we in this? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I fully, I fully agree. And we see that today, the popularity of the European Union in Italy is falling to unprecedented levels. Whatever happened in the last decades, Italians always wanted to be part of Europe and uh, part of Euro area. And today, these things are really in doubt. And part of that is this divide between North and South. And we see that many very important proposals put together by CPR network, and especially by French and German economists, who published uh, a number of proposals on, on fiscal solidarity, solidarity, including my colleagues from Sciences uh, Po, part of this group, I, uh, some of these proposals were not uh, followed, but still the Eurogroup meeting last week came to unprecedented decisions. And uh, ex ante, uh, we would probably be skeptical that uh, Dutch and Germans would agree to those uh, decisions, but we saw some major steps forward. They're still, as I said, minor relative to what nation states can do, but still it's a good sign of solidarity. And then on top of that, we saw that international cooperation that Adam was talking about, it's a common enemy, so we should help each other with whatever we have uh, and whatever the other country is in shortage of. And we saw patients being moved around across borders. We, we saw medical supplies being exported and imported. So I wouldn't say Europe is failing. I'm just saying that it's, uh, it is a very difficult time. And there is some progress, but I would like to see, would, would have loved to see more progress. Yeah, we have uh, a question that came in before and a question from Robert Donor as well. Robert Donor's uh, asking about information technology in the current crisis. Um, on the one hand, great, because track and trace and smartphone apps and everything like that, um, but also greater threats to privacy and increased surveillance. And uh, that does that fuel a, a sort of economic nationalism narrative? Also, um, Alina sent um, uh, a, a question even before we started and to ask uh, about uh, the role of social media in this crisis. Now, economic nationalist populists are very good at using social media, as we already said, and some of them have fueled particular narratives in this and are putting out particular narratives in this. Um, what is their responsibility? What is the role of it? How effective is it at um, creating more economic nationalism? And should it be regulated to do something about this? Monica. Um, let me come, come to that question from a, from a different angle, and I'll let my colleagues answer the, is there something we can do about it? Um, the angle that I want to take is the Yes, we have that going on on the one hand, and we see how we know now how social media divides up, uh, us up into bubbles, and people have their different realities within those bubbles that they simply, you know, do not want to give up and, and resist giving up. But there's one element of this crisis that I think is really important, and it is gaining more and more traction, and that's the science. Um, I think everybody has, not everybody, but I think slowly people are coming to realize one thing. 
that, you know, their lives are at risk because they're at risk of being contaminated. There's an epidemic out there. And you have the scientific community, which is not acting in any nationalist way. It's actually working together to try to find solutions and not just that, to produce the ongoing research that they're producing. And I see, even on social media, a lot of people becoming more and more interested in that research and what that research has to say. So we may be, and here I may be being, perhaps I'm a bit too optimistic, but let me make the optimistic statement at least. Perhaps, you know, this is a way by which we're gonna be pricking these bubbles a little bit as people become more and more interested in, in what the scientists have to say. And thus we shift from these made up narratives that are contained in these different bubbles to something that relies on fact, because what people really need to defend themselves from the virus is fact. And um, maybe this is an opportunity. So let me throw that out as a provocation to my colleagues as they, as they address the, the bigger question. Yes, who wants to take that first? Adam, you take that first. Oh, no, no, yes, I, okay, I, I agree. I agree. I agree with Monica, and uh, I would also say that some countries have started to regulate propagation of uh, false news. It's actually still a question of terminology because uh, I don't like to use the word fake news. This is uh, one uh, American president uh, uh, uses to um, label the mainstream media. But if uh, you look at what uh, France is doing, Germany is doing, they're already trying to regulate um, uh, the propagation of uh, false news and false narratives, uh, misleading statements. And then also social networks themselves are uh, thinking about self-regulation in that uh, respect, uh, hiring moderators, fact-checking and so on. And actually today, uh, when you record a YouTube video about, um, about coronavirus, YouTube would also try to check whether you are not spreading disinformation because disinformation today is not about uh, one, or, uh, one or two percentage points of tax rates or tariff rates, it's about lives. And so we see that disinformation happens, but there is a, I fully agree with Monica, there is a greater awareness of, this, of, what, of what is at stake. So both companies and society and governments are probably happier to do more to stop the dissemination of disinformation. Yeah, Adam, I'm actually going to put a different question to you. Bill Emmett's asked, what's going to happen to US-China relationships? So let's move on a little bit to what's happening next in policy terms. Yeah, and Bill and I have together been on this topic for a while. Um, So I think this obviously plays into the hands of the anti-China faction in the US, which again, as much as I'm willing to assign responsibility to the Trump administration, was definitely much wider than just their immediate adherence. There are a lot of people in both parties and all kinds of places in the US who are very suspicious of China. And while I'm not sure China has been notably more um, selfish and short-sighted in its initial response than other countries have proven to be, they certainly have been uh, selfish and short-sighted and nationalist. And so this continues to feed the narrative. Um, So I think it does get worse. Now the question is, in what form does that take? We already spoke, thanks to Hugo Dixon, about the idea of there being barriers to 
cross-border transfer, not only of ownership, but what goes with FDI, which is human capital, technology, information sharing networks. Um, and we should expect those to adapt. And um, this will continue. The more variable question is how much U.S. and Europe or U.S. and other allies split apart, go their own way versus remain connected. That's going to be the issue going forward. And that will have effects on the entire range of U.S.-China issues, as many people have pointed out. Um, I think in terms of direct confrontation, I do not expect anything terrible to happen. There might even be, as my colleagues like Mary Lovely and others have pointed out, that you know, some reality check on the managed trade targets the Trump administration and President Xi's team agreed to in the last China-U.S. trade deal, which were incredibly intrusive in China, therefore counterproductive to both the U.S. and China, and which were unrealistic to meet even before the pandemic. So there might be a reality check there, and that might reduce friction in some areas. I think also the issue of Taiwan has to be confronted. Taiwan, as they've rightly been pointing out, is excluded from the IMF, is excluded from the WHO has been behaving very responsibly, has been looking after its own people, perhaps not a model to everyone, but very well. And so, you know, can we get a modus vivendi where, you know, ultimately if China asserts claim, they, they, they will be able to impose it, but, you know, so far in their own self-interest and in certain amount of humanitarian interest, they haven't. And so can we get a modus vivendi where Taiwan maybe gets into at least the WHO under these circumstances? That, I think, is going to be another flashpoint. Um, so it doesn't look good for U.S.-China relations. And again, even prior to the pandemic, I and a number of my colleagues have been saying, you know, I don't expect that much to change, even if Trump loses the election. And the change will be more in terms of U.S. relations with some of the institutions and other allies. But I think the pandemic just makes it. Yeah, can I broaden this a little bit? Because we also have another question that's been sitting here for a while, talking about mid-sized economies, not necessarily the US, but those that are very dependent on trade and have benefited from the increased openness of trade, economic nationalism, clearly following the pandemic is a threat to that just at the time when they need to find growth somewhere. What should their optimal policies be, Sergey? Well, I come from EBRD, I worked at EBRD, and in EBRD, there is no doubt that success of those post-communist countries, especially of new member states who actually became high-income economies. It's all due to trade and FDI. And uh, there is nobody who doubts, even in those countries who claim uh, economic nationalist policies and populist policies, even in those countries, they all, the new member states, want to remain part of Europe. The potential joiners want to join Europe. And those who can't even dream of joining want to have some kind of uh, free trade agreement with Europe because smaller countries, of course, understand they cannot afford to be a target. And let me just stop here because this is not on one hand and not on the other hand. You can hear a lot of statements, but people understand that prosperity comes from trade and from foreign direct investment. And let's hope that those policies prevail, even though this shock, of course, will bring trade a lot, uh, bring, bring, bring uh, trade down a lot. So the ratio of trade to GDP will collapse. But, but I hope that it will recover. Yes. But, but, but do they know that, Sergei? Because uh, at the moment, that message is not uh, a widely disseminated message. And you hear more often people saying that we should be bringing more manufacturing home. We should be doing more within our borders. 
That seems to be a very popular narrative at the moment. That's an excellent question, Tim. A lot of economic nationalists, as Monica could have told you, are believing in this strategy of bringing manufacturing home. But today's global economy is not about every country producing its own final good, <clears throat> its own car. It's about global value chains. And uh, you've interviewed uh, uh, Richard Baldwin many times about that. And uh, of course, many countries in Central and Eastern Europe have understood that. Some of them produce final goods like cars using uh, intermediate inputs from neighboring countries. Some of them actually provide those intermediate in inputs uh, and parts to German car manufacturing. But at least within Europe, it is clear understanding that you cannot build trade borders within Europe. European value chain model works and it delivers, it delivers to richer countries and uh, middle income countries as well. And uh, neighborhood countries, countries which are currently outside of Europe, understand that as well and want to be part of European free trade area, if you like. And, it's easy to talk about those issues when you have a big, more or less health-sufficient economy like the United States. Even in the United States, this crisis demonstrates that you're reliant on other countries, on other economies for medical supplies, for all kinds of stuff you want to bring in to uh, not just bring prosperity, but also safety to save lives. And in that sense, I, I'm optimistic. Can I just piggyback on that? Because I think Sergey is ending on exactly the right note. There is a, an issue going back to some political science work done in the 70s and 80s by people like Peter Katzenstein about the flexibility of small states, particularly in Europe and then around the world, because they have to face reality. They have to be more responsible. They have to be more open because these limitations, the inability to become totally self-sufficient, the inability to protect yourself from outside shocks is it, staring you in the face. And so, of course, sometimes they run off the rails, but it is an important check on the political discourse and the awareness of people. And so picking up on what Sergey just said, ultimately the reason people like Sergey and Monica and I and our colleagues argue for international cooperation, argue for international integration is because even for the US, even for China, even for India and Brazil, it is impossible to make yourself totally secure or even more secure relative to how you are when you're integrated if you manage it. And, and the problem for some of these bigger countries is that, including the US, is they can hide that fact. They can delude themselves that they can do better this way. And one piece of research I'd love to see colleagues at CEPR or at Peterson do is some kind of sort of, you know, investment model of diversification. You know, even if you're the US and you have a large market, how much do you lose over time in terms of insecurity of food supply, of insecurity of medical supplies, of insecurity of income? volatility if you're not diversified and integrated. And, and yes, the U.S. or China can get away with it much more than Costa Rica or Estonia. But in the end, it probably doesn't seem to work even for them. They're just more able to hide the fact that it doesn't work, it being economic nationalism. Now, there are, looking at the list of the people who are on today, there are quite a few people who could well take up your challenge, Adam. Indeed, that, I saw that. some of the names. Yeah, so... Um, We've only got five minutes to go, so there is there are a bunch of questions here, which are basically, what can we do about this? If economic nationalism is bad, I think we've established that, what can we do to make this better? What's your suggestion? So, you're, yeah, you're pushing that to one side. <laughs> no, 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 I'm trying to make sure the door to the studio, uh, 
<laughs> okay, fair enough. Who wants to go first on that? Monica, will you go first? I will. Um, so we, there are a few things we can try to do about it. Um, one of the things that we can try to do about it is go back to history. And here's, it, it's an effort in trying to convince people and people, you know, as we were saying before, want to have their own realities. But there's a lot of historical basis um, showing that, you know, it simply doesn't work. We have seen as I was saying, bouts of economic nationalism throughout the world in different cycles and different stages of the global economy. And by and large, you know, the, the lesson that we get is, look, it's, it's an unsustainable model at the end of the day, because at the end of the day, you either mess up your macroeconomy completely or, you know, and or you, you fall into a situation where suddenly you just stop growing at the rate you were growing before because you exhaust the capacity of the economy to um, really sort of keep those policies going. And we see that on and off, on and again, you know, throughout, as I said, throughout history. In the post-war period, one example that comes to mind because it was the one country that tried autarky and it failed miserably is Spain. You know, Spain tried that model and it failed. It was a complete failure. It, lacked, it led to a lot of backwardness. So if we want to go by the, the history, there's a long narrative of history that narrative in fact that you know tells us that these things simply don't work. But then if we just want to go with, okay, fine, that's not, not, not going to convince a lot of people. Well, the current circumstances I think will end up convincing some people at least because the situation is one where, you know, after we get out of this epidemic and whatever way we get out of it, there will be a reconstruction effort everywhere because economies will be, uh, will have suffered significantly. And that reconstruction effort simply can't happen without coordination and without global cooperation. Um, this is kind of the lesson we learned after World War II when many countries were still very nationalist and yet they had to come together for reconstruction. So I think, you know, ultimately we may be going through this period where we see the opportunism in nationalism rise, but as we, as we get further out into sort of some exit, that's, that is pragmatically going to have to fall by the wayside. This is how I see it. Uh, Sergey, you go, and then Adam can have the last word. Right. Let me let me say just three things. One is a long-term thing. Economic globalization does generate both winners and losers. And in the recent decades, not all countries have done a good job in helping the losers. And that's a fact, and it has to be addressed. And every failure to provide losers with the, and I don't even want to use the word losers, but those who don't benefit from globalization, providing them with opportunity to prosper in an overall growing economy and society. If you don't take uh, care of those left behind, you provide uh, opportunities for economic nationals. And so this is kind of a message that I would like to reiterate, irrespective of the current crisis. Now, Talking about the current crisis, multilateral organizations have to do a good job. This is a time of big task and uh, for European Union institutions, for UN institutions, especially World Health Organization, and for IMF and the World Bank, this is really a time of standing up to this challenge and showing how, in practical terms, multilateral organizations can save lives. 
a lot is at stake and a lot can be done. And uh, I think both Peterson Institute and CPR have uh, written letters and proposals to those organizations, how they can step up their efforts. And finally, once again, I would like to reiterate what we've just uh, said many times during this hour is narrative communication. These people are not very good in doing things, but they're very good. I talk about economic nationalists. They're very good in convincing the public. And so the uh, mainstream politicians have, uh, have uh, to invest in presenting their case and convincing people better because we have a strong case. Just uh, we also need to remember that uh, we need to communicate it better. Uh, Adam, briefly from you. There's more of us than there are of them. Us not being the economists who distinguished many of who joined this call. Us being people who are not looking to be nationalists and maintain the status quo at other people's expense. We just have to fight. And, and it's going to be a political fight and a communications fight, as Sergei and Monica have said. Um, but in the end, you have to resort to reality and truth-telling is the only way in a democratic society to make this fight. And so I'm grateful to CPR and PIE and our supporters for giving us this platform to be part of that fight. Well, it's good to end on, a, on an optimistic note, because optimism is in short supply at the moment. And uh, there, are, there, are many, there are many difficult things we had to say over the last hour. So let's... Uh, in, I, as you say, I think that uh, most of the people here have got a better hope for the future. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, panel. That's all we have time for. Um, we haven't got through all of your questions, uh, but we have your questions. And actually, quite a few of your questions have got your names on them as well. So the panelists might want to get in touch with you afterwards. I'm not promising, but they might want to. Uh, if you want to read more, we've already given you quite an extensive reading list during this. Uh, there's loads about economic nationalism on the uh, Peterson Institute website. Um, the uh, Monica's working paper with uh, Jeremy Zettelmeyer is the uh, measuring the rise of economic nationalism. That's right, isn't it, Monica? Yeah. Uh, it's working paper 1915, if you want to look up that. And if you want to go to voxeu.org and uh, download our CEPR ebook on the COVID-19 policy response, called Act Now and Do Whatever It Takes, you'll find Adam wrote chapter 23, which I was quoting from earlier. It's called Containing the Economic Nationalist Virus Through Global Coordination. And also at VoxEU, of course, you can find Sergey's Research Policy Network. It's, it's a lively debate there. And like today, not everyone agrees all of the time, and, and it's much better for it. So uh, if I could ask the, uh, the panel to uh, wave goodbye. That's what, yeah, thank you very much. And uh, from all of us at uh, the Peterson Institute and the CEPR, uh, stay well, and we hope to see you soon. Goodbye.